Welcome to Built to Play, games and technology of your arts inclined. I'm Armin Bali, And I'm Daniel Rosen. It's likely the winter break when you're hearing this, so there's, there's no news and no interviews. Instead, we're going to be talking about one of our favorite series, and Daniel's done a ton of research for. It's Metal Gear Solid. Metal Gear. We'll be talking about the nonsense ride from quirky stealth game to one of the strangest franchises out of Japan. So expect a lot of nanomachines. And... But before all that, we have to talk about the game that preceded them all. Metal Gear? Alright, I think they're gone. Yeah, okay. okay. We can come out of hiding now. Yeah. All right. We probably should have introduced that concept. Yeah, so we're currently hiding from, I guess, the Metal Gear mobs? Maybe. We're in a cardboard box. Yeah, inside that... the studio. Yeah. So I don't know how effective it is at hiding us, but... But it is keeping us very safe right now, and slightly warm, although not by much. No. Uh, Alright, so... we should probably... I mean, Metal Gear Solid is a game we're talking about. It came out yep. in 1998. Yep. Um, alternatively, if you want to summarize it very quickly, it is a story of two snakes, one nerd, and the dinosaur they all love. And the thing is that maybe some people forget is that Metal Gear Solid is technically a retro revival. It's a yeah. revival of this really old game called Metal, Metal Gear. Gear. Um, Metal Gear Solid is technically the third game in the Metal Gear series. And Metal Gear as a, as a series isn't super relevant to Metal Gear Solid as a series, other than the fact that it's sort of a prequel sometimes in the middle. Um, basically, it was positioned as a sequel to Kojima's NSX, NES and MSX computer standard Metal Gear games. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Solid series, so we won't go into them too much, but we should recap what happens in them. Yeah, it's just... You know, they, they laid the foundation on the kind of game that Kojima wanted to make. They're definitely the least crazy game. And and also what's interesting about them that I don't have actually here is that the reason they're stealth games, the whole reason Metal Gear is a stealth game is because of limitations on the MSX. The MSX being a console that not many people played here. Did it yeah. ever even come out of the United I think very limited. I think one or 200 co- like units came out here. Yeah, so it was a very limited console and very limited release. And it, it was cheap. It was relatively powerful. It was, it was a computer. It was sort of a personal computer uh, when the... Those were very primarily game-centric objects. Yes. And because of that, it's it kind of feels like um, st- he was trying to make an actual action game. Mm-hmm. But instead, because he couldn't just – he couldn't generate all the kind of the dynamics he wanted, mm-hmm. it came out as this stealth-hiding game. Yeah, what, what sort of happened was he wanted to make a game inspired by his favorite action movies like Commando and um, – I think there was the problem. He started yeah. out by making, I want to make Commando. Yeah, well. <laughs> uh, and so what ended up happening was, well, how do you make, the MSX can really only display two or three guys on screen at once. How do you make two or three guys really threatening? You make it so they can kill you in one hit. And then you make the game about sneaking around them and getting the better of them intelligently. So what ended up being like the starting of Commando, of kind of uh, the high, high concept 80s action film, Blade Runner, that kind of thing, all end up being um, reduced to, uh, kind of a more James Bond situation. So, so you end up with this weird mix of tropes. Though a little bit less, again, less shooting as James Bond yeah. does. Now, let's, you know, it, it's really, you know, there, there's kind of no movie analog for it. The super spy who doesn't really touch anybody or get seen. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the story follows Solid Snake. Uh, he's a young soldier at this point as he infiltrates Outer Heaven, a fortress state that is designing a walking tank called Metal Gear. His job is to destroy Metal Gear. Eventually, Snake finds out that the person behind it all is Sean Connery. I, so, no, no. Um, Big Boss. Played 
by Sean Connery. Everybody in Metal Gear, the original Metal Gear, has some has a uh, a basically a, a an actor drawing as their sprite, including Snake, who is straight up George Clooney. <laughs> Which I mean, cons- cons- he, he became Russell Crowe as the series yeah. went on, but he definitely was George Clooney back then. Which is funny because I feel like I don't think George Clooney would ever want to be anywhere close a Metal nope. Gear Solid movie. Not even a little. Uh, so Snake beats Big Boss and blows up the tank. After retiring from soldierhood, Snake is called back to infiltrate the Central Asian stronghold of Zanzibar land as they've kidnapped scientists to build a new Metal Gear. Um, in there, Snake discovers that Big Boss is alive, his best pal Gray Fox is a traitor, and NASA has funded a space ninja that has gone rogue. Okay. His name is Black Color. What? <laughs> Does, okay, so I'm pretty sure that we can at this point say that Kojima did not have a great foundation on which agent, which American agencies did what, which will reappear later on in the series. Um, but NASA definitely di- didn't make uh, space ninjas. It definitely didn't make space ninja drugs that could turn anybody into a space ninja. Yes. Uh, um, anyway, at this point, um, Snake eventually kills Big Boss for good, incinerating with him a flamethrower, and watches Gray Fox die in the burning rubble. He returns to retirement, retires to Alaska, where he races uh, sled dogs, and that's where Metal Gear Solid began. Metal like Gear you, 3, was, was originally called. Um, was going to be a Panasonic 3DO exclusive. And what a different world we would have lived in. <laughs> <laughs> then the development that switched gears, and he ended up focusing on Metal Gear Solid 1. Yeah. Do the, we know why that was? Uh, presumably it was pure sales. I think Metal Gear 3, or Metal Gear Solid, eventually came, took a long time to make. He was originally planning it in 96, I think, at the earliest. Uh, and by 99, I think it was pretty much proof, or 98, it was pretty much proof that the 3DO was a failure. Right. Um, and the quote eventually became that they were making the best, according to Konami PR at the time, Hideo Kojima's team is making the best PS1 game ever. But before he could make the best PS1 game ever, we have to talk about Hideo Kojima, because this man was born on August 24th, 1969, in Tokyo, Japan. And this guy was a massive movie nerd who, want, who, who end up, wanted to make movies but ended up making video games. Uh, For a while there, Kojima wanted to be an illustrator, and then a writer, and of course later, a filmmaker. He loved 80s action films like Commando, Terminator, and Escape from New York, and eventually kind of all of his games became knockoffs or heavily inspired by his favorite movies. I mean, Snake comes from Escape from New York. Um, There's a character in Metal Gear Solid 2 called Iroquois Pliskin, which is directly taken from Snake Pliskin. Um, Right. Um, Snatcher is straight up Blade Runner, and Police Knots is straight up Lethal Weapon. Yep. Um, despite all this, he studied economics in university. Uh, because I guess that's what you do to get a good job in Japan? Yeah, so back then, it turns out, I don't, working in video games was a super shady industry. The thing is, so the job he landed, eventually landed at was at Konami, which was then this kind of small games company that in the 70s had shifted from renting and repairing jukeboxes into making video games, which I think wasn't, like, that was pretty part for the course when it came to Japanese video game companies. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, Nintendo started as a toy thing, but in the 70s, they were doing a bunch of weird junk that wasn't game-related, and I think, I, I think Capcom's only really started as an arcade company, but pretty much everybody else is just sort of doing whatever happened to make money with electronics at the time. Nintendo invested in love hotels at one point, so... Yes, so many of their own customers were created via Nintendo. (laughs) Um, But while while Konami may have had, like, some kind of pedigree, by releasing games like Frogger and Super Cobra in 1981, they were kind of just this toy company that had come out of obscurity. 
Kojima actually says that he got a lot of flack from friends and family for choosing to work there. Again, because it was so tiny and kind of crummy, and especially back then, before Konami was a household name in the NES era, um, it was kind of nothing. They couldn't even really make any money off Frogger, because I think Majesco owned that in the West, or Midway. And that, like, Frogger was where, Frogger in the U.S. was where it really took off. I remember my dad got a, like, he claims he was for a weekend completely addicted to Frogger to the point that he started up on, like, the Friday and then just kept playing until the Sunday where they realized they hadn't slept in two days and were still wearing the same clothes. See, I thought that story was going to go, my dad claims for a weekend he was the world Frogger champion, (laughs) but only for one weekend. (laughs) <laughs> he was the world frogger champion in his room apparently um one guy they literally had to tear away from the screen but in, in any case the the thing with konami was also like they were making these games that appealed mostly to children and were on these obscure platforms like the msx which we've described in some form as being this you know terrible computer yeah, so Kojima started out as an assistant on a sequel to Antarctic Adventure on the MSX, which I think is a penguin-based adventure game. <laughs> Kojima was an unknown quality until basically 1987, which is when he designed and released Metal Gear. Uh, it didn't blow anybody's minds or anything, but it sort of put Kojima on the map as a designer who could do a lot with little. He wasn't a household name, but within Konami, he was like, oh, hey, that's a game designer right there. Yeah, and considering the excesses that he would indulge in later, it's hilarious in, in hindsight. I mean, you could kind of get the hints that he was going to do this when he talked about how in um, when he was trying to write short stories, he would accidentally make them 400 pages long, which kind of defeats the point of a short story. Um, oh, Kojima. <laughs> um, he also developed a bit of a session of Cold War uh, and World War II. He explained uh, in a 2004 interview with Edge magazine that, uh, quote, My father used to tell me stories about the bombing of Tokyo, how he was running the streets searching for shelter from the bombs and fires. He told me he carried wounded children to safe places. His stories had a tremendous impact on me. So, through these stories and his love of American action films, Kojima liked reading and writing about the U.S. and the military, which is kind of this weird contradiction about, you know, Japan being a country without a military and not caring so much about these action films. Um, I think they do care to a certain extent, but certainly not to the degree we do. Um, the, the, the military macho man stereotype in America is very different than the macho guy stereotype in Japan, which has a bit more... I mean, you know, there's the whole stereotype in the anime of the macho guy with the pink flower petals for you know reasons I don't necessarily perfectly understand. It's like it's considered more effeminate for some reason. Like if you look at there's a there was that um, football game in which like an alien stole a football or something, and then a bunch of these muscle men had to go and find it, and it's like all of them are horrible gay stereotypes for some reason. Yeah, so you get the sense that you know in a move in a Japanese movie adaptation of Contra, um, those soldiers would would probably be you know making out between rounds, which is pretty great actually. Yeah, so as a result, the when when these characters who were buff, who were these military types, um, when they appeared, they were usually these American characters because it just didn't make sense in a Japanese context. And I mean, to be fair, Snake's not exactly a buff military guy. I think part of that was that he made a sneaking character that didn't quite yes. fit into the American action hero mold. Snake never really throws out one-liners after killing a guy. Not that he kills that many guys, you know, generally speaking. It's kind of like a diehard A little bit, yeah. Snake is John McClane, but with less jokes. Since then, Kojima's become a bit of a control freak, I think is fair to say. A little bit. Just a a tiny little... tiny bit. 
uh, we're we're going to explore what that means for future games uh, in our next episode. But before, but for now, know that Kojima was constantly quitting working on Metal Gear games, only to come back when someone threatened to make a sequel. Which actually starts with Metal Gear 2, because the only reason he made Metal Gear 2 on the MSX is because he ran into somebody, I think apocryphally the story goes that he ran into somebody in Konami on the elevator who told him they were making an NES sequel to his Metal Gear game and asked him if he could make a real sequel. And so he did. And then he made Metal Gear Solid 1 years later and quit and made MGS 2 because of fan outcry and quit. And then he made MGS 3 because he wanted to make a good game and quit and made MGS 4 because he wanted to finish a series and quit, etc. <laughs> Which brings us about up to Metal Gear Solid. We'll have the full history of the game's development in a second, but let's hear from one of its localizers, Jeremy Blaustein. We talked to Jeremy when he was out in Taipei, and he had a fairly interesting morning on his hands. I tried to order, like, an egg sunny side up, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, ham and toast, right? He says to me, like, do you want it together? (laughs) I thought he meant, like, the ham with the eggs you know like you know how you you put the egg on the ham you know sure so I said yeah and then you know they never asked me if I wanted to eat there or to go so the next thing I know I have a bag in front of me and I bring it home and it's uh, it's a sandwich with all that stuff on it and I had gone to all this trouble to ask for the egg to be uh, you know like soft you know so it's like yolk in it because that's how I wanted my egg Mm -hmm. but uh, they put it in a sandwich so when I took a bite of the sandwich the thing exploded (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so like my 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 backpack was just covered in egg yolk. Oh. <laughs> so I got that in the washing machine right now. It was just it was like it was like something from the fly or something like that. <laughs> just explosion of gore. Only two eggs today. Holidays must have taken the day off. We're kind of talking to you today about Metal Gear Solid and localization stuff. So, can you start a bit by telling us about like kind of your history at Konami before working on Metal Gear? Sure, sure. Um, you know, Konami was a much smaller company back then. In fact, they only had about a thousand employees in Japan. And um, my brother Michael was working in. This is my twin brother. He was working in Konami, Chicago, and I was an English teacher in Japan, out of work soon to be out of work. And he, uh, he spoke with a, with a Japanese guy over there in Chicago and arranged to get me an interview. So I interviewed and told him how much I loved Konami games and got a job for the international business department. And they put me in charge of like, of all the strange things to put me in charge of, I'm doing like shipping and things like this, like filling out shipping documents, and which is not easy given the state of computers at the time and the complicated Japanese necessary to do all that. So I was actually in the Sega division, not, not just shipping, but, you know, I was dealing with Konami America and Konami Europe talking about how many orders they would take for a game or how they wanted us to change such and such game to suit the American market. So I was really handling the communications since I was the only foreigner in the company, I started to get requests from R&D to translate this little bit of English. You know, there was no, at that time it was 16-bit era, so there wasn't all that much translation to be done until uh, Snatcher came along. 
Snatcher is one of Hideo Kojima's early games. It's an adventure game where you play as Gillian Seed. He's an amnesiac who hunts down human-like robots called Snatchers. It's a game that sounds suspiciously like an anime version of Blade Runner. Mankind faces its greatest crisis. The appearance of a mysterious android life form. Its purpose and origin are unknown. Gillian lives in Neo Kobe City and has a secret connection to the Snatchers. But most importantly for Jeremy, it was a game with a lot of text coming out on the Sega CD. You know, at that time, there weren't any companies that offered as a service. There was no word localization, as far as I recall. So what that process was like was finding someone who had enough free time and Japanese knowledge to actually translate all this text. I joined uh, R&D for mm, maybe three months or so. And so I was working in R&D, helping write additional text and managing the, the, the localization. And once that text was finished, we had to get it all into the game, check it all, and then do the voice recording, which was a whole different thing. And that was sort of, from what I understand, that was sort of where you kind of took point, right? Yeah, it was very early on. So you're dealing with budgets that, you know, were unheard of. Uh, Mr. Kirita, who was the the head of the R&D department, he was pretty adventurous because, you know, it's, it's a big budget to fly fly, fly me over to, uh, to America and hire all these voice actors in a studio. So um, basically we asked Konami Chicago to find a studio. And I kind of flew into this situation without any preparation other than, you know, of course, knowing knowing the script. I didn't know what was going to be waiting for me over there in Chicago. And so I get there and, and we're in the studio and, they're the, you know, here, here are your actors. And so I know what, what parts I have to fill. And then it's a process of seeing what each person can do, you know, how many voices they've got, because we don't have enough actors for all the, for all the voices. So I have to see, see what kind of range people have, think about how their voices match the different characters I've got to fill, and you've got to do it fast. So within the day, we figured out who was going to be who. Then we have to set what voices they're going to use for what character, because you can't, once you get into the recording, it has to be established because you can't have inconsistency, can't have people changing their voices. So that's got to be all straightened out. And then you're trying to work as fast as you can and get as good stuff on, you know, recorded as you can. And it just took on a life of its own because these guys, fortunately, they knew each other and we were in a big studio um, where everybody was in the studio together in front of a mic. So it was almost like a play. And they were really able to get some good chemistry between them instead of just recording the lines blindly at one person in a booth, so, which is usually the case. So you'd never done that before that point? Yeah, I'd never done that before. It was scary at first, like, you know, I have to admit. You know, it's a lot of responsibility knowing you're, you're, you're putting stuff on permanent, you know, on tape means, it, you know, it's permanent. It's not going to change. You say yes to a cut, it's like, that's it. You have to you have to trust your instincts. Wow, did you know? I think I liked that. Did I really like that? Was that good? Is you know, are people gonna be pleased with that? Is my boss gonna be pleased? Are fans gonna be pleased? But it's done. <laughs> and it wasn't like we listened to the Japanese voice and we said, okay, copy this voice. We just were limited by who we had. And once you get started, you're started. There's no there's no looking back. And then you just cross your fingers and hope. I've studied the data transmitted back by Metal Gear, so I know all about what happened out there. Four years later and many more localization jobs, Jeremy landed the translation for the next Kojima game. It was a revival of one of his old franchises, and one that hadn't made much of a mark in the West. In case you haven't been paying attention, it's our game of the hour, Metal Gear Solid. 
Jeremy had to do a lot of reading to get the localization right. He directed the voice actors and refined the dialogue. Well, for one thing, Metal Gear, um, they had, a, they had a, a director, Chris Zimmerman. So I was really going over there as the, uh, the script writer. And I sat on the, at the soundboard right next to the director and was invited to give direction as much as I wanted. And I did because I knew what, you know, what I wanted. And uh, much more than the director. She was also reading them essentially for the first time without a whole lot of time invested in the story and the characters, whereas I had spent six months living and breathing every aspect of that story and the characters. It was like impossible not to get really serious about the, the directing and making comments. I just couldn't not do it. It was also a much, you know, a much higher budget production. Even though now, if you were to look at that, you'd 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 think it was totally done on a shoestring. That first Metal Gear game, it was in a small studio. I remember that was right on the street, and so we occasionally had to even stop when a, when a truck went by. Metal Gear Solid doubled down on the military fiction in earlier games. It takes place in the far-flung future of 2005. Solid Snake is called out of retirement when his former unit, Foxhound, goes rogue. Foxhound takes over Shadow Moses Island, where the American military is building a new Metal Gear. A nuclear-equipped walking battle tank. Metal Gear. And, since the game attempts to be realistic, there's a lot of military jargon. So he read up on Navy SEALs, military acronyms, and looks through the few binders of artwork Konami gave him to get the right tone. But Metal Gear Solid also has a psychic who can fly, and a cyborg ninja. So Jeremy had a lot of leeway. From the perspective of an American, you have to understand that the Japanese are a lot less steeped in war culture than we are. For, for decades, we've had all these war movies, you know? I mean, just think about all of these, you know, Rambos and, and you know, Red Dawns and what, whatever. All, all these movies for all these years that have military lingo and military characters. And so we have this enormous history that we've become accustomed to. So if you're going to write a convincing character that's supposed to be a hard military dude, you have a, a much higher hurdle to get over to be convincing than for the Japanese. And so uh, I'm translating, but I don't have the lingo necessary to write convincing dialogue. And I'm not a military guy. So the first thing I had to do was try to learn how military guys speak. So I started reading all these books, like SEAL Team 6 books by this guy named Marchenko, who was a SEAL Team 6 leader, one of the first. He wrote these series of books talking about their missions. And he's got a pattern to his speaking and a lingo. And I tried to emulate both the words and the attitude in Snake. The first thing I started translating was the opening. It just seems like now, looking back on it, that that took so long to do that opening. For one thing, because it's the most important thing, really. You know, it's it's this it's the scene, it's the thing that you see first. It's what lays the groundwork for your, you know, emotional involvement, right? It's got those nice scenes of of uh, Snake and the the underwater swimming vehicle, right? For one thing, Japanese is, tends to be uh, reverse word order to English. So imagine for a moment you've got, you know, a screen of, you know, snake underwater here. And it says, you know, all right, I've got, a, you know, a top secret mission for you and you've got to infiltrate the Shadow Moses base, right? The nuclear weapons disposal facility on Shadow Moses Island in Alaska's Fox Archipelago was attacked and captured by next generation special forces being led by members of Foxhound. But when you get to the end of the Japanese dialogue, maybe in response to the dialogue, 
he makes a reaction. High-tech special forces unit Foxhound. Your former unit, and one that I was a commander of. So they're still around. The problem is, is that in the English, more likely than not, that phrase during that screen that's caused Snake to react actually comes at the top of the dialogue because of the word order difference. You've got to get the tempo right, in other words, to match the screen. One funny thing I like to talk about is how this phrase OSP. Yeah, right? the on-site procurement, right? As usual, this is a one-man infiltration mission. Weapons and equipment OSP. Yes. I made I made it up. <laughs> I made it up to, to, to sound like a military lingo because I didn't know a military lingo for that kind of thing. And the Japanese, if I translated it directly, would have been, you'll pick up your you know weapons and equipment there. How important do you find voice acting is in implementing a translation? Out of 100? Sure. I think it's really important. <laughs> you may read, read the text, but if the, you're hearing the voice, you know, if, if there was no voice and there was just text, you know, you're going to have a voice in your head reading the lines for you. And you can, your imagination is going to put whatever slant you want on them. But if there's a guy reading those lines, it completely determines the entire emotional tone of the game. I mean, it, if you can't, if you don't have convincing lines and you don't have convincing line read, I think it can it can really blow a game. So I would say that the localization for um, Metal Gear Solid, you know, like how how much could I influence a game? I've asked myself this question. I think that I can't make a game with a localization. I don't think I can, I can make a game a great success. But I think I could take a great game and ruin it. <laughs> <laughs> According to Jeremy, Kojima really liked the translation. As did a lot of people. It's the game that Bloodstein's known the most for. Back in February, Jeremy launched a Kickstarter for Blackmore's Bane. It's a steampunk adventure game that feels heavily inspired by Snatcher, of all things. And it includes many of the same voice actors from Snatcher and Metal Gear Solid. The, you, was there any particular reason you wanted these actors? Well, I always liked Jeff Lupin's work, you know. I think, I think that the, the voice he established for Gillian... For some reason, it's it's really stuck in my head all these years. Cunningham! No! Snatcher! I'll get you for this! You know, on a personal on a personal level, Snatcher Snatcher is a game that even after all these years has a kind of certain special place in, in my heart as one of only a few games that really I think Snatcher fans will understand, but it's like Snatcher doesn't really ever leave your, your brain in a way. Mm-hmm. It's it's like a great movie. Maybe you had to play it at a certain age, I don't know, but it was the first it was the first game I ever played that had the depth of, of connection, you know? And so since Blackmore's gonna be my first game, I wanted to recreate that sense of connection by telling our own story. And so naturally my mind went back to the Snatcher cast. In that sense, there's kind of an homage aspect to it, I guess. For some reason, the voices that he did and the voices that I directed in that game was a really, really special thing. And I'd like if I could get even a, a small bit of that back and recreate that again, I'd just be really, really happy. Yeah, I was I was I was, I was actually about to say that it was a very small game. It was also like it was a small print run for a system that not necessarily a lot of people had access to. It's it's impressive. It's created this sort of, I mean, there's there's obviously this following through necessarily Kojima's work, but also just this following of people who were so struck by it. Yeah, yeah, and I'm I'm so lucky because I've had that same thing happen actually for 
well, more 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 than a couple games. Mm-hmm. You know, Snatcher and Metal Gear and Silent Hill, um, especially Silent Hill Two, are games that kind of took on an outsized importance. His Kickstarter failed, but Jeremy's still working on the game, and he has few regrets from the time he spent with the Metal Gear and Snatcher casts. It happens in an instant, and then it lasts forever. You know, especially on the internet now. People in like NeoGAF forums or whatever that want to pick apart this line or pick apart this line or look at the translation and say, hey, this is different. They have to understand that not just the voice recording, but also the translation. You're given a a really short amount of time to translate something. You're given an even shorter amount of time to put it in the voice recording. Once it's down, it's down. You don't have the benefit that people in forums have of, you know, looking at it. Maybe you've translated a million words, Mm -hmm. you know. And you had a time schedule. Um, so, yeah, um, if you have an inexhaustible amount of time to pick over every single line, of course, you can find better ways to do everything. But when you're looking at a game and you're looking at the localization and the voiceover and, and indeed, you know, the artwork and every, every aspect of it, these are people that are working on hard schedules to create something. And once it's done, it's done. And they don't have the benefit of pausing the video and, you know, spending an hour Googling stuff. And so I think when you're looking at a game, for good or for bad, it's a combination of all these people's hard work either coming together like in a, in a magical, alchemical way to create something more than the, the sum of its parts or, you know, or it falls apart. And it's the same. It's the same thing for any any you know, collaborative art like a movie or a great TV show. It's like, wow, how the how the how the hell did they do this? So so I don't know. I don't really regret anything. I mean, this actor could have been better. This actor, their voice could have been higher or lower or not use this accent or not use that accent. But you're looking at stuff that's done at the moment that it's done. Decisions have to be made. And if it comes out with more good things than bad things, you got to be happy, you know? And that's how I feel about it. Jeremy Blaustein is the localizer of Metal Gear Solid. You can find out more about his new project, Blackmore's Bane, at IQIOI.com. Which brings us to the game itself. So, Daniel, what's a Metal Gear Solid? It's a dream your heart makes. I thought so. So the, when they were making the game, the development team brought on weapons experts and a SWAT team to get the guns down right, which sort of ties into the whole thing of Kojima doing a lot of research back then to kind of get the grounding of this was Tom Clancy. This was Tom Clancy novels the game, basically. And for the time it came out, it, it did fit in with like a lot of the games that were coming out that had the name, um, had military tie-ins. Yeah. Those games did a lot of military research, but I mean, there's only really so much you can do on a PlayStation. Right. So this this selling point was how good it looked and the high-quality voice acting, which you can thank Jeremy Lawson for. Yeah. Uh, the trick with the graphics was that the game used forced perspectives and never gave the player any camera control. Since the player only ever sees the world from two or three angles, modeling in these Design are much easier and can make much more interesting looking things. Uh, Resident Evil uses a similar trick but used pre rendered 2D backgrounds while MGS was in full 3D, which was meant to be the really big impressive thing. As a result, you kind of end up with this game that 
when going back to it, it looks kind of primitive, but now, but for the for the time, it was it looked really cool. And I would argue it still looks pretty decent compared to most PlayStation things because they don't it doesn't have these really high detail models. It's just got these models that have very simple textures that from the only angles you ever see them on. So all that really ever matters is how you're looking at it. It's got a, it's very stylized, very focused. It doesn't look great, but it doesn't look as bad as say you know Tomb Raider. So with um, like Hideo Kojima being influenced by a lot of like movie directors, this makes a lot of sense as this kind of positioning was a trick and often used in horror movies, for instance. It was that you'd try to like put the monster in the darkness, especially if you had a smaller budget. That way you didn't get to see the full the, what the monster looked like and you didn't have to worry about all the crazy special effects. So but which leads us into the story, which right. um, Metal Gear Solid holds the distinction of being the least confusing Metal Gear Solid plot. So, but uh, you're, I think I'm going to need to bear with you, Daniel, as you go yeah. through this. So, as we said, year 2005, Snake is called out of retirement when his former unit, Foxhound, goes rogue and takes over Shadow Moses Island, um, which is ostensibly a nuclear waste disposal facility, but is actually the spot where the American military, in conjunction with DARPA, um, is building a brand new Metal Gear. Um, he infiltrates the base and deals with the nightmare wackos known as Foxhound. So let's introduce our cast of nutjobs. Okay, so there's a bunch of guys out here, and I'm just going to read from the list you prepared for us. There's Vulcan Raven, a massive Alaskan shaman who carries a M61 Vulcan rotary cannon that he ripped off of an F-16 jet. We've got Sniper Wolf, a Kurdish-Iraqi sniper who shoots mercury-tipped bullets to poison opponents she doesn't kill, is addicted to anxiety medication, and likes to befriend her targets before killing them. Psychomantis, a Russian psychic who is aware of the fourth wall and loves controller vibration. I, okay, no, I think you wrote these wrong. No, that's real. Okay. That's mega real. Revolver Ocelot, an expert interrogator and Western-obsessed whack job who loves his cult, ar- his cult single-action army revolver and thrills at the prospect of reloading a silver bullet into a long shaft. And Liquid Snake, a British super soldier turned terrorist who claims to be the twin brother of Solid Snake and they're both clone sons of Big Boss. They look nothing alike, but... That's that part is true. This is a running theme. If somebody claims to be a clone of Big Boss or a brother of Solid Snake or related to Snake in any way, if they don't look alike at all, it's a hint that it's totally true. Um, they he, look nothing alike, but as you as I just mentioned, but he wants Big Box Big Boss's corpse in exchange for not using the Metal Gear Rex to nuke the White House. Um, th- so the thing with this plot that I love is that I don't think Liquid Snake at any point wants money. No, he, he might have requested like a billion dollars or something, but really his core plot was he wants Big Boss's corpse, and at no point do we ever explain why. Uh, the closest we can assume at this point, we figure out in later Metal Gear Solid games, but the closest we can assume at this point is that the government is using Big Boss's DNA to build the next generation special forces, or the genome soldiers, which they are training at Shadow Moses. Part of Liquid's insurrection is that he's taken over all of the genome soldiers. Okay. Um, we'll get into those guys a little bit later. But I think d- it's fun to figure out the rest of the plot as we go along. Yeah. Um, we should probably introduce ourselves to Snake's team as well. Yeah, so then that leads us to Roy Campbell, Snake's old friend and commanding officer. He loves to yell Snake's name. Mei Ling, an MIT student working for the government as a data analyst and intelligence officer. She loves Chinese proverbs. Natasha Romanen- Romanenko... A weapons analyst and anti-nuclear weapons advocate. She loves cigarettes and the Stinger missile? Yeah. She has a lot of emotions about Stinger missiles. Master Kazuhira McDonald Miller, a man with too many names, and a hand-to-hand combat specialist and Big Boss's best bro for life, who was killed and impersonated by Liquid Snake before the operation began. He mostly gives insane advice like, Snake, if you need to walk across a metal floor, put your socks over your shoes so you won't make any noise. 
there's no button for putting your socks over your shoes. <laughs> okay. Um. <laughs> Naomi Hunter, Foxhound's chief medic and nanomachine advocate. She's the sister of Gray Fox and blames Snake for um, his death. In addition to the nanomachines and anti-freezing uh, peptides she injected into snakes before the mission she injected him with the fox die virus which will become important later but is designed to kill foxhound members he came in contact with um hunter modified the virus to kill snake spoilers it really doesn't yeah um we also have uh, hal otacon emmerich the engineer who designed rex uh is being held hostage by foxhound and he loves japanese animes and Meryl Silverberg, Berg, Berg, I think, yeah. Yep. The fo- one Foxhound member who didn't go rogue, she was deliberately assigned to Shadow Moses so that her uncle, Roy Campbell, could be leveraged to withhold information from Snake. She loves doing sit-ups. And finally, there's Johnny Sasaki, Meryl Selgard. He is going to become important for reasons we literally cannot explain, uh, but right now he has really bad diarrhea and Meryl loves to beat the crap out of him. He loves Meryl. And then finally, there's Cyborg Ninja. Uh, who is actually Gray Fox, revived by the government through... Okay. Um... (laughs) You want me to roll back on this one? Yeah. Okay, so Gray Fox, who dies in Zanzibar land in Metal Gear 2, is actually kidnapped by the government, or the Patriots, we'll later find out, but for now it's the government, and rebuilt with cyborg parts and gene therapy to program him to want to kill Snake... And liquid snake, basically to do the work that, to, to do the government's work. He is a ninja assassin. When he sees Snake, he actually goes insane and decides his only mission is to kill Snake to avenge his death. Uh, Naomi does not know about any of this and wants her, and injects Snake with the virus to kill him as well. Then when she sees Gray Fox, she realizes the error of her ways, but whoops, too late, already injected you with a horrible virus. It's like a Shakespearean tragedy just <laughs> unfolding within the, within the Metal Gears. So... Before we get to the final parts of the story, which is what's coming up next, we should probably talk a little bit about these individual characters and how they interact with each other. So, the, Metal Gear's strongest suit, at least the part that's most memorable going in, I feel like are these characters, yeah. right? It's the sheer insanity of some of the allies you're working with. Um, the fact that when you call them up, they give you um, insane advice. Alternatively, talk about proverbs for no reason in particular. Mm-hmm. Give you spend long time, long time on tangents that go nowhere. I think I think my favorite favorite conversation in the entire game is when you call up Nastasha while you are smoking a cigarette, and her entire talk is about how bad cigarettes are, but how much she loves to smoke them, and how bad she knows they're for her health. But it can't be as bad as the nuclear radiation she's got going on. Nastasha Romanenko is Hideo Kojima's sock puppet. And if Hideo Kojima was not a chain smoker when he was making the game, I do not understand what the purpose of that conversation was. <laughs> it's so beautiful and so completely irrelevant to the rest of the game and its themes. So, and then on top of that, you have the bad guys, who I feel like the bad guys are also this other memorable portion of the game where there are all these different bosses, and that's been the, one of the most critical parts right. of Metal Gear, have been the, the, the bosses just being these really unique encounters. Right. I mean, we start with Ocelot, who's sort of simple. You know, you kind of duck and shoot, jump from cover until you can, you know, shoot him while he's reloading his silver bullets into a long shaft. But then they kind of, they get they, We tougher. get bigger with, you know, Vulcan Raven, who yep. you have to kind of lay mines around the battlefield and duck from his chain gun uh, and deal with the ravens to fly around him because he's a mystic shaman. Sniper Wolf, which is a really fun uh, sniper battle, which mostly ends up in you just chomping down Diazepan. Right. Um, or Diazepan, the anxiety drug. 
because you know, I guess it takes an addict to beat an addict, which is which because you can't keep up with her otherwise. Right? Yeah, the yeah. diazepam actually is uh, is what reduces your shaking when you are shooting a sniper rifle. Actually, the more of it you take, the less effective it gets. Oh, that's which w- is why um, Sniper Wolf is downing it by the truckload. Huh. Um, so. That's that's funny, but then the I think the highlight and the the one everyone calls back to is Psychomantis, who then go he tells you about what games other Konami games you have played. If by... you love Symphony of the Night, if you I see you like Suikoden, <laughs> um, he will uh, make, make your make controller, controller vibrate. Right, vibrate. He will stop your controller from working and make you have to plug in the secondary controller. And he will sometimes take your screen and uh, make it display Hideo instead of video. Like it will give you like basically as if you hit the input button and switched inputs. Um, which I mean, those trippy fourth wall effects were probably one of the just the the weirdest parts of that game because it was so hard. Unlike the other ones, which seemed like there was this logic to how you were responding to them, mm-hmm. this was probably the one where it was like, oh, I have to deal deal with like the PlayStation itself. Like, yeah, it was. It's definitely the most memorable part of that game, and definitely the most memorable boss fight. Aside from, me, I would say it's the most memorable. With the second most memorable being Metal Gear Rex. Yeah, which is this really interesting puzzle battle where you have all these, you have sort of. Tens of little ways of doing tiny damage to Metal Gear Rex until you finally take it out. And that there's this image of Snake just being so small as Rex rises from the elevator, giant in front of him. And that's where we're going to catch up to the story, I think. Right. Uh, after, so after doing that little bits of damage to Rex and kind of taking it apart, uh, Gray Fox dies by stopping Rex from stomping on Snake and grabbing his hands on its leg and then gets crushed anyway. Uh, Snake wakes up uh, shirtless on top of Metal Gear Rex, and Liquid challenges him to a fist fight where he declares that Solid Snake is the is the superior clone and Liquid's the inferior clone, and he's going to prove that the inferior clone can destroy the superior clone because genes don't matter. That's why he wants Big Boss's corpse, because genes. Okay, and um, let's see what else has got here. So then Snake learns he wasn't sent to the Foxhound so much as he was to carry Fox Die and get rid of anyone on the island who knew too much. The government wanted to secure the Metal Gear and the genome soldiers they had created for Big Boss's DNA, Snake, Otacon, and Meryl disappear from the base after Campbell fakes their death. Yeah. So after the fistfight, Liquid dies some at some point somehow. Um, and then we kind of get into our epilogue where and everybody – because at this point, Hideo Kojima didn't want to make a sequel. So mm. everything ties up relatively neatly. Except for like the last 15 seconds. Right. We'll get to that. So Snake, Otacon, and Meryl disappear from the base, of course. Uh, after recover- discovering that Revolver Ocelot sold the plans to Rex on the black market, Snake and Otacon found Philanthropy, an anti-Metal Gear NGO. Uh, Snake becomes a hero to the public after Nastasha writes a book about Shadow Moses, complicating the government story that the incident was started by a right-wing rat radical terrorist group, uh, and ended by a dispatch commando unit. Merrill joins the military again to fight corruption from within. Uh, Mayomi disappears during a debriefing and isn't seen for a decade. Mei Ling then joins as an analyst? Yes. And then Roller Ocelot, the last remaining member of Foxhound, has a conversation with his real boss, revealing that he wasn't working for Liquid at all. No, he works for... Mr. President, uh, this is the first of approximately 10 trillion Revolver <laughs> Ocelot backstabs. Which you will now, which you'll know because we will signal it by the following sound. Bang! All right. And... So Ocelot also reveals this point that Snake doesn't actually have to worry about Fox Die since because he's liquid aren't perfect clones, it can't actually affect them. Um, next and... time, Patriots take Manhattan. But first, so... The actual importance of Metal Gear Solid as a game is super hard to overstate. 
Um, it's one of the first games with like highly competent act- voice acting, and it's a story that tries to be cinematic outside of a role playing game. And we sort of talked about Jeremy, you know, with Jeremy Bodstein, so yep. we won't go too much further into that. The other really big thing is that it's the cornerstone of modern stealth game design. Every stealth game owes something to Metal Gear Solid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's between Metal Gear Solid and Thief. These are the two big stealth series that have come up. It's the um, because of this, you end up. All modern three, third-person games mm-hmm. end up taking something from Metal Gear, whether it's the camera, whether it's the controls, mm-hmm. whether it's the environment, the military setting, whether it's parts of the kind of the although allusions to realism. Although it, Metal Gear never ends up being all that realistic. No, um, I think so. Do you? And this is just sort of an open question to you. Have mm-hmm. you played Metal Gear Solid One recently? No, I've not played it recently. Do you think you could go back to it? You know when I when I look through the sections on Metal Gear Solid when during Metal Gear Solid Four where you actually get the chance to revisit um, mm-hmm. the Shadow, Shadow Moses, Moses. Um, it makes me think that it might be possible. But personally, I just looking back at that game, it feels kind of the 15 seconds I've had to play it going back feel kind of clunky. I don't mm-hmm. know if I could. Do you think so? I I have revisited relatively recently. I think it's I think it's definitely still totally playable now. You do have to get used to that clunkiness. My problem with it is that the radar in that game is so good that it just sort of devolves into Pac-Man. Right. Where it's just like, all right, I'm Blue Dot, Red Dot just yawned, I can walk by. Like, you never actually have to look at the screen, which is the weirdest part, until boss fights. It's more about, like, trying to just negotiate the space as fast as you can while getting through the the area. It it becomes sort of a weird, highly efficient game, which isn't very exciting. I I feel like it's easier to go back to the GameCube remake, the Twin Snakes, um, but Twin Snakes is so, so easy because it, it... it takes the exact designs of the arenas from Metal Gear Solid 1, but adds first-person mode, so you can aim perfectly and are much smarter and more accurate than any of the AI. Uh, it also has the most stilted, awkward voice performances, but it uses the exact same cast, so it's really strange. Also, at some point there, Naomi lost her accent. It was something like Blaustein didn't return for the yeah. voice direction, so while the translation is for the vast majority of it... Um, Two or three to- lines are different. Yeah, but for the most part, it's totally the same. The delivery is kind of different, and because of that, it feels kind of stilted. Yeah. Um, uh, the primary differences in that game also, by the way, are the weird cutscenes where Snake suddenly becomes Neo from the Matrix and is, like, dodging bullets in slow-mo. <laughs> and these have these have very... Like, don't have any dialogue for the most part. Mm-hmm. Like, there's... The, um, it does, however, have a Mario toy that you can shoot for a one-up. So, I mean, I mean congrats, everyone. You Good job, it. Dennis Dyack. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> um, so, what the game doesn't tell you is that this whole Shadow Moses incident was puppeteered by the Patriots, a secret organization that controls the American government. We'll get to them later, but just so you know, here is a rundown of what they did so far. They're the ones who sent Meryl to the base. They're the ones who wanted the Metal Gear secure. They're the ones who wanted to create Solid Liquid and the rest of the DNA-enhanced super soldiers. And they're the ones who actually revived Gray Fox as a cyborg ninja. In case you haven't realized it yet, the Patriots are behind everything. But before we round off, I want to point out that there's one other guy who wrote Metal Gear. Although I don't need the game or its translation. He wrote the novel. I'm talking about the always busy Raymond Benson. Daniel Rosen caught up with him right after the announcement of a new James Bond movie. Well, I just got off the phone with an interview uh, from England because of all the Bond stuff that's happening today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this morning there was a press conference announcing the new title of the next Bond movie and the cast and everything. So whenever that happens, I always get phone calls to ask my opinions and junk like that. So when and when it comes to Metal Gear Solid, you're, you said your son played them. Were you 
were, I mean, were you aware of them through him? Were you, like, did you see him play them? Did he tell you about them at all? Yeah, I, I mean, he, he would come in, you know, uh, and say, Dad, this is a really cool game. Come watch, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I'd go and watch him a little bit. And But at that time, you know, I was writing novels. Mm-hmm. And I was not, no, I, I didn't play games that much. I played games a lot when I was uh, working in the industry. Mm-hmm. But after that, I just, you know, I didn't have the time to play games much. Uh, so I kind of lived that vicariously through my son. Mm-hmm. How did you... I mean, how did you react to the narratives? Like, or was it just sort of like seeing stuff out of context? And I was like, well, that's nice. Well, I thought it was cool graphics, you know, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I even tried to play some of it, but you know, I wasn't very good at those Twitch action kind of shooter games, and I would always die. Raymond writes novelizations, among other things. He's also written a comprehensive history of James Bond, a few of the later Bond novels, several musical compositions, a historical superhero series, and one of the most beloved games of all time. You know, I was in the video game, computer gaming business for 10 years mm-hmm. between 1985 and 19, well, 12 years, 1985 to 1997. I got in kind of on the ground floor right in like 1984, 85. That's when PCs were just coming into the home, like the Apple IIc and stuff like that. Um, I did some text adventures first for, who was the distributor? Mindscape, Mindscape. I did a Stephen King adaptation called The Mist and two James Bond adaptations one was a view to a kill which was the current movie that year and goldfinger then i started working for origin down in austin texas and i was the head writer and story director for ultima 7 the black gate then i got hired by microprose and i wrote and designed return of the phantom this was a role-playing game and then I worked for uh, Cyber Dreams. I wrote and designed Dark Seed Two with H.R. Giger. So, so you have a you have a long experience with uh, with adventure games, then. Yeah, yeah. He's a writer of a significant history in games and games writing, which is why it's fascinating to see how exactly he approached transferring Solid Snake to the novel. So, did your history with spy novels and James Bond particularly changed the way you approached the Metal Gear stories at all when it came to writing them? Only experience wise, I think. I mean, uh, I didn't like think, oh, uh, this is a lot like a James Bond book because it isn't. But it was more like, you know, my experience in writing Bond and writing action adventure thrillers with a lot of technical stuff that was under my belt. So I they figured I was the right person to ask i i read a little bit just doing some research and it said somewhere i saw that it said that kiju kojima had did some supervising but was that true at all or was it simply you know he was the you were he was you know looking for the author specifically oh he was definitely involved my liaison was an american who worked for uh, konami in japan who was like one of his right hand guys and kojima would give his uh notes through him uh so yeah it was kind of a, a a complicated process, but it it seemed to work. If you took a slightly different take on certain characters, specifically Snake, he's actually he's kind of a little funnier, a little more sarcastic. He does a couple more quips. That was intentional, and it was uh, it was encouraged. They told me when you think about Snake Plissken, think about Kurt Russell. I mean, Snake. I said Snake Plissken, didn't I? He, they goes, said, he actually goes by he actually Snake goes Plissken by Snake Plissken in a Escape times. from New York. That that's that he was the model for Snake, Solid Snake. So I watched Escape from New York, and Kurt Russell is putting out wisecracks all the way through it. About an hour ago, a small jet went down inside New York City. The president was on board. President of what? 
That's not funny, Pliskin. I know that there was some criticism from some of the fans. Uh, I saw some, you know, saying, oh, he's he's sounding like James Bond or something. Or I don't know. I, I don't remember exactly. But they didn't think that my snake was the snake that they pictured in the game. Whereas, you know, that was what I was directed to do. And that was what Konami said. Yeah, this is right. You're going to kill me now, Snake? I'm too tired. Maybe Turning Metal Gear Solid into a book comes with a few challenges that most military fiction doesn't have to deal with. How do you capture a scene where Psycho Mantis forces you to change controllers on your PlayStation? Or when you have to find a codec frequency on the back of the CD case? Raymond tried to streamline the novel the best he could, but some parts of the Metal Gear series are maybe just too strange for a serious novel. You know, I, I wrote nine James Bond novels before that. I was pretty good at writing action. You just, you know, the main thing in writing action is you got to draw it out sentence by sentence and be very visceral. You have to describe it in terms of sensation, like what, what is, what's the character feeling and seeing and smelling and tasting and how slowly is the sweat dripping down his head? And, you know, you kind of almost have to go into slow motion in the writing. Uh, you don't just say snake jumped off the, the platform, landed on his feet and blasted away the guards. And how does how was the experience of like the the story and the action compare to you know your experience with James Bond stuff? How is it different? Well, it's a lot more science fictiony and a lot more fantasy as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, in in the Metal Gear Solid series, you've got you know you've got vampires and <laughs> and, and witches and magic spells and all kinds of you know stuff that's not in the real world, as well as you know spycraft. I just went with the flow, you know, I just kind of wrote it as I saw it. I don't know how to describe it, except it was instinct. You know, you just, you, you write, it's what was on the script. It was what was in the game. And so you try your best to, to make it believable. If you remember, what was the weirdest thing about the, the story or the games that you noticed while writing? The second book, Sons of Liberty, the plot was so complicated. Yeah, that's, Sons of Liberty sort of, infamous for being complicated. Do you remember anything particular in there that stuck out? Well, you know, I remember having a lot of questions. I insisted uh, for the book to have the little map of the location in the front of the book so that when I could describe, okay, they're in, you know, this section, uh, a reader could, you know, look at the map and visualize where they were. A lot of what made that complicated was the layout of the structure. Big shell, yeah. The big shell, yeah, the big shell. Um, you know, because all, it was, they were all alike. You know, they were all these little, little different, I don't know, octopus-like arms, if I remember yeah, correctly. Hexagons, I think? Hexagons, yeah, yeah. What was the bad guy's organization? The, the Patriots. The Patriots, of course. <laughs> you know, I had a lot of questions about the Patriots. And don't we all? What, what the motive really was there <laughs> toward the end. I remember it was a very murky kind of motivation as to why they were doing what they were doing. The Patriots? Oh, we'll learn all about them. But next time. Raymond Benson is a writer. You can find him at RaymondBenson.com
That's all for this week. I'm producer Armin Bali, And I'm features editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of... Jeremy Blaustein. Raymond Benson. We're available on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so we know how we're doing and more we can find the show. While you're there, check the archives for articles about games, love, open world, localization, and virtual reality. It's all part of a little thing we're calling Built to Play Volume 1. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Built to Play and find out when we'll be back with Built to Play Volume 2 Reloaded. The Chronicles of Built to Play 3.0, Adventures in Babysitting. Until then, watch out for more Metal Gear all through the cold winter months. And you can follow me personally at Flarcon, that's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen. And remember, you do like Suicoden, don't you? Thanks so much for listening. No!